care if you had a dozen deaths. When it says the last enemy to be abolished is death, there'll be no more death. That says the last. Eschatos, the Greek word. And we have the book of Revelation. I believe in literal punishment. I, I believe in judgment. Certainly I do. I believe the book of Revelation is true. I believe the words of Jesus is true on judgment. And I believe that all of mankind, every man will pay, uh, will be rewarded according to his works. That's what Paul tells us. That's what Revelation tells us. And then they're going to be cast in. Those that are not believers, unbelievers, will be cast in the lake of fire and brimstone. Which is the second death? Now, you talk about these people that holler around about hell all the time. They talk a lot and think very little. That's actually the truth. Because there it says, death and hell. Deliver, King James, the word, delivers up the dead that are in them. So it has to come to an end. And it is cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. So as far as the book of Revelation goes, it's the second death. But when you go to Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through to 28, he goes much further into the future. In fact, as Paul tells us in the first chapter, of Colossians, that he completes the Word of God. Read about the 25th verse on through the rest of the chapter and see. He's the one that completes the Word of God. If you want the final revelation from God, you better go to Paul. You know, speaking of Paul, uh, I noticed as I was reading his, uh, his works and going into the concordances, this strange man who was the, the apostle to the whole world never used the word hell. And I find that really kind of amazing that if it was his responsibility to save people from hell, he never opened his mouth about it. So since Paul was silent about the word hell, Gehenna, Hades, Tartarus, Sheol, uh, could you talk a little bit about hell and the modern well, conceptions or misconceptions about that word? That anybody ought to be able to see there's something wrong with the doctrine of eternal hell. Anybody that will get Young's concordance and will check the Hebrew... There's one Hebrew word, and that's the Hebrew word Sheol, which is translated hell, 31 times. But it's also translated grave 31 times. And translated pit three times, which makes a total of Sheol occurring 65 times in the Hebrew text. It means the same as the word Hades. Hades is Greek. Sheol is Hebrew. Hades is a derivative from the Greek verb horao. I, in the present active indicative first person singular, and in, in horao means I am seeing. I'm seeing you now. That's the present active act right now. I'm seeing you. All right, the Greeks took the, the form idain, which is the infinitive form, and it means to see. It's an heiress, infinitive. It means to see. They took the uh, uh, an added a prefix to it, an alpha. They put a, uh, our modern Greek text has a rough breathing. We don't have an H in Greek. We have a rough breathing sign. We pronounce it Hades, Hades. They took the alpha, and that really alpha negates the word seen. So what we have is like the word theos. Theos is the Greek noun for God. Atheos. Put an alpha in front of it, and we have what? Atheist. 
That's the same way with the word Eden, the infinitive form, to see. They put an alpha in front of it, what do they have? Unseen. So that's what Hades means. It means unseen. Now, it don't seem like to me it would take a very good Bible student or a very deep Bible student to see there's something wrong with the King James Version. Because Jonah 2.2 tells us, Out of the belly of hell cried I. Now, was Jonah in hell fire, or was he in the belly of a large fish? Was there fire there where Jonah was at? Answer that question it's to your own studies. Bible students, whoever they are, if they study those words, surely, surely they'll have to answer that question. Was Jonah in fire? Is that what the word hell means all the time it's used in the Scriptures? Fire? Okay, now let's go to Hades in the New Testament. The word Hades occurs in the uh, uh, Tectus Receptus text. That's the text that the king's translators had. Only about four or five hundred years old. Not an old Greek text. We've got Greek texts today that's back to the third century. The, uh, the one that the King James translated had had translators had was only about four or five hundred years old. And uh, uh, that was the first Greek text that was printed in Western Europe by Erasmus, the Dutchman by the name of Erasmus. Translated, I think, the first time about uh, 1560. That's the version, the Greek text, that was translated in Greek parallel with Latin. And that's the text that Martin Luther used. Martin Luther, I'm going to say something now that most people will disagree with me, but it's proven if you'll turn to the last, uh, the last Kittles, volume 10, you'll find there that uh, tells you that Martin Luther could not translate directly from German to from Latin, from Greek to to German. He was not competent to do so, but he was a Greek, Latin scholar. Martin Luther was a Latin scholar. He was educated in Latin. But uh, there, 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 that text that they had, the King's translators, Hades occurs 11 times. The best of our Greek texts gives us 10 times. The questionable place is 1 Corinthians 15.55. And there's another question. Why did the King's translators come up and tell you in the text, grave? But right in front of it, they had a little number. Now, I'm talking about the King's translators, not the American Standard. The 1611 edition I'm talking about. And off on the side, then they give you an alternate reading. And they give Hades, and they give you hell. The text reads, grave. But they give an alternate reading, hell. Now, Hades occurs in Revelation 20, 13 and 14 again. And there they give you in the text, hell. King James translator now. But they had a little number in front of it again. And over in the margin, then they said, or grave. Now, now what is it? Now, you know most of the modern King James translations 
have taken all of those marginal readings out so that a person like you and me wouldn't know that the translators had a problem with that word. Tactus Receptus, of course, is Latin, which means the received text. was not a very ancient text. It was put out by a Dutchman by the name of Erasmus, who was a contemporary of Martin Luther. And Martin Luther, that was the only Greek text that was available in Western Europe at that time. It was his works. And he had problems with some of his brethren over his translating of it, bringing it into Latin. The fact is, some of the book of Revelations wasn't even complete. All the Greek texts that he could find, ancient texts that he did find, that he was trying to put in Textus Receptus. And so, like a good Latin scholar, he took the Latin Vulgate, and he translated it into Greek. That's one reason why there's some of the Greek words that are in Tectus Receptus that are not in no ancient Greek text at all. Because he put it in there from the Latin Vulgate. Now a question. So are you saying, I want to get this really correct here, you're saying that there are, in the Textus Receptus, there are words that do not occur in Greek manuscripts at all. The ancient ones, right. And they came from his, his translation of the Latin. Now, did that get into the King James Bible? Sure, that's the only text they had. That's the only text that, te- that the king's translators had. Are there words in the King James Bible that are not that do not appear in the Greek text? Well, that's a hard question to really answer without looking at each individual Greek word and each individual English word. I was thinking about the word tree in the in the book of Revelation, uh, book of life versus tree of life. Uh, he got that out of text. I'd receptors. have to look that particular question up okay. before I could answer it. I'd rather not try to answer a question that I'm not a can't remember for sure. So in your opinion, uh, the king's translators didn't have... A, uh, a perfect Greek text. Absolutely not. They had no perfect text, nor is the King James Version, as we have it today in English, a perfect text. In fact, it is the King James Version, 1611 edition. There was no such a thing as a letter J. Most people couldn't even read the name of Jesus if they seen it in the 1611 King James Version. Now, what else is different about the original 1611 King James? It has 14 books that we don't have in it today. Really? Right. So I wonder which one's the inerrant one. Well, the Apocryphes did the first one. In fact, is there was a famous bishop uh, in Ireland by the name of Abbott who passed a law that if anybody published the King James Version without the Apocryphy, they had a year, I think, in the penitentiary. Yeah. Yeah, they was sad. They, them fellows, some of them considered it the Word of God, the equivalent. Well, really, I have the Apocrypha, and I have it in Greek. And it is a good study of words. Some of those words that don't occur very often, it does help you to find the meaning of those words. But uh, to say they're inspired, I don't think there's any among the Protestant churches today that would accept them as the inspired word. You know, a lot of us have a, have this idea 
that there is this original perfect Hebrew somewhere locked up in the Vatican or uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma or somewhere that uh, and, and an original inerrant Greek out there somewhere maybe in uh, in London that uh, people who translate Bibles go to those origi- those perfect Hebrew and perfect Hebrew and out of, uh, perfect Greek and out of that they come with the English translations. Can you tell us a little bit about if that's really how it goes or what is this Greek original Greek original Hebrew and manuscript business all about? Well, we don't have no original manuscript. I don't think there's anybody will deny that that's made a study of it at all. And you don't have to know much to know that. Uh, there's no such a thing as an original Hebrew or original Greek or uh, even a Latin manuscript. There's variations in all those texts. Uh, the oldest Hebrew we have is about a thousand years. The oldest Greek that we have will put you back about oh, 1,500 years ago. And, uh, of course, uh, now I'm speaking of before they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, when you go there, I've seen the book of Isaiah when I was in Jerusalem. There you have a manuscript that goes back before Christ's time. But uh, with the exception of those few manuscripts they found, why, uh, we don't have a perfect text. Now, the King James Version, anybody that'll holler and complain and say that that's the original, that's the inspired Word of God, don't know what they're talking about. Because why would you have alternate readings? Here, here, you read in there, and it gives you a reading, and then you turn around here. Here, here's an example of it. The, the day ye eat thereof, thou shalt die. Or the Hebrew really is, dying thou shalt die. And that's in the King James Version, the margin. They don't mean the same. Now, it's in the original King James Absolutely Version. Absolutely. It is. may not be in the one that the, the young student here has in his library. Well, if he gets a hold of a one that's got a margin re- marginal reading, a reference Bible, it should be in there. Most of the time it'll be in there. It won't be in Schofield's Bible. He took all them out. Did he put anything in by any chance? Well, he did make some changes on the word I own, where it was translated world. He put age in the margin a lot of places. He made some good corrections there lots of places, but he certainly didn't on the King James Version where it gives the alternate reading. That proves to me and to any thinking person I would think that would prove that the King James Version can't be inspired because which one of those alternate readings are you going to take as the inspired word? Thou shalt die or dying thou shalt die. Now, now you just talked about the King James, the marginal reading with that dying, dying thou shalt die versus the other way that you expressed it. What's, what's the difference? Well, the one would be implied that he died that day that he partook of the forbidden fruit. They ate the forbidden fruit and he died that day. So he, we, we know he didn't die physically, so they interpret it as a spiritual death. And we know that he lived hundreds of years after that. But the other one, dying thou shalt die, means that he's mortal. He started to die that day and he become dead several hundred years after that. That's the true reading. That agrees with Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, For as in Adam all are dying. He uses the present active uh, verb there. And then again he says, uh, I am dying daily. That's a present active verb there. So we know 
that the minute you're born, a baby is born, he starts to die. Cells in our body starts to die. That's a physical truth. And that's in the Bible back in Genesis. Dying thou shalt die. Tell us a little more about how manuscripts came down the road to us and some of the things that may have allowed some of these errors in the Greek and the Hebrew text to, to come to us. And maybe a little bit about how uh, the scholarship of today is correcting some of those errors. Well, of course, we know. I don't know how many people have tried this, but I have. I've sat down and took a something like, say, First John, copied the Greek text, letter for letter, spacing between the words so I could translate it below. This was years ago when I first started laboring with the Greek. And I found out later, as careful as I tried to be, I'd still miss a letter now and then or miss a word or something. So it was all done prior to the printing press, which the, was invented in Germany. It was all done by hand. And it's impossible for a man to set a scribe. I don't care how good he is. The Hebrew scribes are probably the best. The story is told that if they ever found a mistake in a Hebrew text, they destroyed it. So, and they probably did have a very rigid uh, rules that they went by. But they still... Anybody that will get a Hebrew text will find that there is marginal readings in it. Anybody will get a good Latin text. Now, I'm not talking about St. Jerome's text that the priest used. I'm talking about the two-volume Latin text that I have. It gives you hundreds of variations. And the Greek text, even Textus Receptus, you go by it today, and it'll give you hundreds of variations. In the Textus Receptus? Yes, absolutely. Sure, it gives marginal renderings. And, the, and some of them will even give you a little translation after the marginal correction, so to tell you the difference. Uh, the Tectus Receptus is, is, is a long ways from being an... It, we, we just don't have perfect text. Now, I don't want to say that to cause people to doubt the truth that's of the Scriptures, because we do have uh, enough truth, and all those marginal readings that we have as I've stated before, I'm sure I've stated it before, there's none of them real critical as to salvation. There's none of them real critical as to the life of Christ. There is some of them that makes minor differences. We could make big do doctrinal differences. But most of them, a lot of them, a good part of them are just variations in the spelling. So the problem with you believing that Jesus is going to save all mankind and the majority of uh, you know seminary students being taught that most of mankind is going to hell is not found in the Greek texts even with the mistakes or in the Hebrew texts even with the mistakes the problem is in the English translations yes that's where the problem come about Translating it into English, not only in English, Martin Luther's translation also. So someone who studies the Greek and someone who studies the Hebrew will come to an understanding of the salvation of all, as opposed to the salvation of eternal torment. I, the I would say they would if they would just take consideration of the text that they're studying. 
you were talking a little while about the word Hades. I don't know if you wanted to make some more comments on it. But those hell words, uh, you and I both know that uh, there are a number of words that were translated into that one English word, hell. You might want to tell us a little bit about the origin of that English word, hell, and what the Greek and the Hebrew behind it is. You you mentioned the word Hades. How about some of the other Greek and Hebrew words behind that English word, hell? The English word, hell... In England today, they still hell the roofs on the buildings, hell the potatoes. It meant something that was concealed, something that was hid, covered up. It's a cognate of the helmet that these boys wear when they were riding motorcycles. That's a covering of the head, and that's what the word really meant in ancient English. Uh, may I say that in 1611 English, uh, it might not have been too bad a translation for the word Hades, but it definitely is way off for today, as it's generally understood by people who understand hell to mean any place eternal punishment. Now, uh, uh, I asked a fellow here just in the last few months who goes to church regular, and the fact is uh, he told me he was so, uh, he was a very active member of his church. I asked him what Jesus was doing in hell. It's in your creed. Every, every Sunday you quote it in your creed. He looked at me and says, I never did think about that. The problem with all of us is we're not trained, I think, to think as we should. We should do a little more thinking about when we read something. We should analyze it and try to find out what it means. Now there's another word, very interesting word, is the word Gehenna. That's really not Greek, other than the alphabet. Gehenna is a Hebrew form translated into Greek, and the Gehenna is a, and it, in the Hebrew it's Gaia ben Hinnom. It's a valley near the city of Jerusalem. It occurs 13 times in the Hebrew text. It occurs 12 times in the Greek text. Jesus used it six or seven times. It occurs 11 times in the Gospels one time in the book of James. And the reason I say that Jesus used it six or seven times is because of alternate readings of the different Gospels. He didn't use it. You'll hear a lot of preachers say, well, he used it 12 times or 11 times. He didn't. He only used it six or seven times. But anybody that will take a map of the city of Jerusalem, a good city map, they will see to the left and below the city of Jerusalem is the Valley of Hinnom. I've been there when I was in Jerusalem. There's no fire there today. There's no place of punishment there. It was a place in Jesus' time and prior to Jesus' time in the Old Testament. Not once is a Hebrew form translated hell. Not one time. And if it means hell in the New Testament, why not translate it hell in the Old Testament? You mean you mean Gehenna, which is translated hell in 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 all the uh, many of King those, James the versions. King James and some of the other yeah. modern translations. That word appears in the Hebrew form in the Old Testament, and they didn't translate it hell there. Not one time. Wow. Not one time. It occurs thirteen times in the Hebrew text. You'd think that they'd be consistent with that. Well, there was there was no such a thing as consistent among those translators. How did the Jews uh, in their Bibles translate the word Gehenna or, or uh, Ben uh, uh, 
Geben they they translated the Valley of Hinnom or the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. So they didn't translate it into uh, Hellfire. As, I don't as know, not in the Hebrew did. text. I don't think so. I've got the Hebrew text here, the Old Testament, and I have used it for years, but I don't. Pretty sure they didn't. They laugh about it. When I was over there in Jerusalem, they told me went out of their way to take take me down there. They said, "There's the Valley of Hell right there." I got my picture in hell. <laughs> now, there's another word, uh, uh, I think, that's also translated hell. Uh, Tartarus. But that is just a prison uh, prison for uh, fallen angels. That's all. It's only mentioned one time. So the word hell occurs in the King James Version a total of 54 times. And by the way, I've asked, I don't know how many preachers, that are hell-fired brimstone people preaching it every day they get, when they get a chance. I've asked about how many times the word hell occurs in their Bible. I've got my first one to tell me how many times. That reminds me that can't help but think that they're not very good students. If that word is so important to them and so important to their doctrine, at least they ought to be able to tell you how many times it's in their Bible. They ought to be able to tell you how many words is translated hell. And by the way, as you know, and anybody else that's done much studying, our modern translations in the last hundred years either transliterates it in the text or gives you a marginal redeem with the word Gehenna in the New Testament. Most all of them. And most of them in the word Hades is literally translated. You don't have to know Greek. You don't have to know Hebrew to see the truth of this. Get a good English dictionary and look up those words. See what it tells you. It'll tell you Gehenna is a valley near the city of Jerusalem, where fire was burning the waste in Jesus' time and in the Old Testament. What's, what did the Jews do in that valley? Uh, I mean, it's a, it seems to be a very famous place in, in well, they Jewish throw, history. Well, they throwed the bodies of criminals in there, and they throwed the waste from the city. And what did they do before that, uh, back in... Uh, well, there's a fellow who owned it. Probably by the name of Hinnom. And that's how come it has the title of the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. And what did the children of, uh, of Israel do in that valley? Well, they burnt some of their uh, children there in that uh, valley. The Jews owned kids in that valley. Yeah, they had there farm. wasn't God that was doing the burning there. It was uh, God's they, they own people that. that were doing the burning. They'd done that. I think they took the firstborn always. Yeah, the, and of course, that was a sacrifice that they made. Those were not Jew religious Jewish people that done that, though. They were uh, apostate Jews. The, the, the Jewish people that were religious, I don't think, done that. The Jews are just like, the, in them days, were just like the people are today. A lot of them were very religious, sincere people, and some of them were not. Lewis, it's, it's obvious, I think, to me and to my friend here, that, uh, that you've done a lot of studying, and you know what you're talking about. And generally, people who know what they're talking about in this world, uh, whether it's in the business world or political world or religious world, they can make a lot of money selling books or being the heads of seminaries or being the professors and chair people of, uh, of uh, New Testament studies and whatnot. 
How much have you made off of all these years of studying the Lord's I have word? not made any money to speak of. I had an opportunity of school come to me, some fellow that was attending a school up in Illinois. Well, I know if I'd come up there and teach a Greek class. I told them I'd be happy to. But they found out I didn't believe in eternal hell, and that knocked that out. You see, if, if you want to... If you want to get along in this world and you want to make a lot of money, you got to scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. That's the philosophy of the world. You've got to agree with what's commonly taught. And if you go against what's commonly taught, you're going to have problems, just like Jesus did and just like Paul. In order to want to forget one passage, for, for this cause are we toiling and being reproached, because we rely on the living God who is the Savior of all men. 1 Timothy 4, 9 and 10. Now, I've had a lot of fellows tell me, well, you're, you're probably right. You're, 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 you're probably right, but uh, we shouldn't teach it. But you read the 11th verse and see what Paul tells us. Paul tells us we're supposed to command and teach it. That's what I'm going to do, regardless of what it means to the, my friends, or my neighbors, I'm going to teach just what I believe. And what is that that you believe? And what I are some of the scriptures that, that you're talking world? about? John 3:16. I firmly believe that Christ died for the worst end of the world. He tasted death for every man. And I believe. First Corinthians, the 13th chapter, and about the eighth verse, tells me, love will never fail. And if God's love fails, one sinner is eternally lost. That means that God doesn't love that sinner or his love is failing. And then, brethren, that's impossible to defeat the love of God. God loves the world. God loves mankind. He created mankind. He didn't create them to throw them away in a waste uh, place called hell. He didn't create them to torment them there. Now, Lewis, you just uh, called Jesus the Savior of all men, but most of the world really doesn't believe that. Uh, and, and they might say, well, you kind of misquoted uh, 1 Timothy 4, 9 through 11 there, because he didn't say he's the Savior of all men. He said he's the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. And a lot of people that I've talked to say that that means that he's the Savior of the especially, not of the all men. Well, that's given the word especially an entirely different meaning the way they interpret it. No, that word does not mean exclusive of believer of those that only believers. It doesn't mean that because Paul tells us he uses it in Galatians and he uses it in Timothy, and both times it cannot possibly mean exclusive 